0: Welcome to The Sanctuary, a safe space to speak from the heart. I'm your host, Israel, and my guest today is writer, kinkster, super awesome human being, La La Queen. Thanks for coming to The Sanctuary today.
1: Of course, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Mm. You know, I, I gotta say, the thing that stood out for me was the writing. And then in one of your writings found out that, uh, oh, well, you actually went to school for it. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So uh, let's start with that. Why did you decide to go get uh, your graduate degree in uh, creative writing?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I have my MFA in creative writing with um, a specialty in poetry, of all things, (laughs) which uh, growing up in a small town in Missouri, I had no idea this was a thing. I didn't know that there was like a literary world I could plug into, um, much less go to school for. So um, I went to college at a small liberal arts school in St. Louis. And there I met um, a couple of writers, but Uh, The person that I'm really thinking of is my mentor, um, David Kuhl, who is a fantastic poet. Um, He unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but we struck up like this really beautiful friendship, mentorship. He really took me under his wing. Um, And I was like a really closed off, like scared kid. (laughs) Um, And I remember being in his introductory workshop um, and it was like the first time that I had sat at a table with a group of people that I felt a connection with and like a kinship with. I just mm. remember looking around and being like, oh my God, my tribe, where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like, the school I went to is mostly a theater school. Um, so there's just like a lot of really amazing artsy people. And mm. like, it's a really, I call it like my own little Hogwarts. Like it really did feel magical. Um just the space that had been created. The English and philosophy department were in the same building. So there was just like this energy. It was in this like renovated mansion. The campus is really weird in that way that it like had acquired like a bunch of like old historic houses in St. Louis and like put like classrooms and stuff in it. So there was like brick courtyards and like a foyer and chandeliers. It was so wild. <laughs> um, and David, yeah, I just remember him asking me to stay after class one day and I was just sure that I was in trouble, right? Like there was that, you know, guilty conscience fraud syndrome. Cause you know, everybody in the class were, you know, they were farther along in their, um, college years than me. And they were brilliant. And a lot of them had taken these classes before Mm -hmm. and just had a frame of reference that I didn't have. Um, And so I thought for sure, David was like, kind of calling me aside to be like, I can see that you're struggling. And like, you know, maybe you should kind of rethink being in this class. (laughs) And of course, it was the opposite. He was wildly affirming and, you know, like, um, just had like, Noticed that I was really connecting with poetry, um, and poetry was sort of on my radar prior to that, but not in a not in a huge way, right? Like I knew of hmm. Poe and Dickinson, um, and like I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> um and so yeah he and then the next uh three years of my uh undergraduate um he just really helped me develop as a writer at first I was like very convinced I was a fiction writer so I wrote like short stories and was just you know like had that whole um dream of you know great American novel etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. um and like I I have gone to fiction again recently, but um, it, was, it wasn't until my senior year thesis um, where I had to select uh, either, you know, doing um, a, coll- a short collection of poems or uh, a short story or an excerpt from a novel mm-hmm. to submit as my um, undergraduate thesis. And like right up until like the last minute, I was like, I'm doing fiction. And like <laughs> literally everybody in the department, like I had taken way more poetry classes. I was like so clearly a poet to everybody but me. Um, And then finally, I just sort of came to and was like, Oh, right, like, I'm, I'm specializing in poetry, and I'm submitting my thesis in poetry. Mm. And David, um, at that point was like, you know, you, you should consider going to graduate school for this, and you can get funded, Um, just apply to programs where you can get funded. And, you know, so he put that on my radar. I knew I didn't want to go straight into graduate school. Um, I just, I had been a very like straight A student working multiple jobs, like really like hyper-focused, like needing to be a high achiever. Um, And for a couple of reasons, like, you know, I just wanted to take a break. Like part of it was that I felt like a little existentially burned out. And part of it was like, I was just coming into myself as an artist and wanting to really take to heart something David would say, which is like, you know, go experience as much life as you can, that's going to make you a better writer. Mm. Um, So, you know, I wanted to go experience life. (laughs) And I did that for a year, I had every intention of delaying grad school even longer. But um, the program that David was most interested in me applying to where his mentor was teaching, Um, he was like, you should definitely apply to Wisconsin and Wisconsin does a interesting thing with their admissions, with their MFA program. And that one year they accept fiction writers and then the next year they accept poets and they alternate like that. Um, so that year that I was taking my gap year was a poetry year. And so. If I didn't apply that year and then I applied to a bunch of other schools the following year, I was like really afraid I would never know about like whether or not I could get into Wisconsin because it's a pretty exclusive and prestigious program. They only take six people a year. It's consistently rated as like one of the top creative writing programs, which is all like this. Like I heard those words when I was like in this moment, but it didn't. I didn't quite grasp like how precious it was to be able to go to this program until I got there. Mm. Um, and like, I was really, <laughs> it's funny. Cause like, this is such a story for me of like the moment of life that I was in. Like I was in this like relationship that was like not the healthiest. Mm. And then um, it was kind of falling apart and I was like looking for an out. So I applied to Wisconsin thinking there's no way I'm going to get in. And then I got waitlisted and I was like, okay, this is a weird limbo. And this is, um, like, you know, I'm, I'm debating on how forthright I want to be about this story. Cause I was involved in some like, you know, vaguely, vaguely nefarious things, <laughs> <laughs> um you know like it's funny to be in Colorado now it's all weed related so it's funny to be in Colorado now where it's like completely legal and okay but in Missouri in 2012 it was very much not okay (laughs) um so anyway uh maybe we'll get into that later but anyway I got waitlisted and then um denied the class had filled up and then like two weeks later as I'm in this just like really dark place of like Who is this person I'm with? What is this relationship I'm in? What am I doing? Why did I study creative writing? Like, is this all, is this, you know, was this all a really bad set of life choices? (laughs) Um, And then I got an email and the subject line, I'll never forget it. It was in all caps and it said, do you still want to go here? (laughs) (laughs) And so, of course, like I replied, I might've done my own, like all caps, electro shouting, like, yes, I do want (laughs) to go here. Um, So yeah, like that. And then I ended up in Wisconsin, and it was life changing. I just, you know, that feeling of like connecting with my tribe only amplified because, um, you know, it's kind of calling out like from undergrad to graduate school, like, it's just, these are very serious writers. And Mm -hmm. these are, these are people that sometimes like people in my class, like, You know, these were 30 year old working adults alongside people who had just finished college. So there was like, you know, pretty even within six people, like a a fairly diverse spread of people um, that all loved poetry as much as I did. And were like dedicating their lives to it for at least, you know, for at least a little bit of time while we were in the program and, Mm -hmm. you know, being funded was a gift. Um, and you know, if anybody listens to this and is considering an MFA program, like don't, don't pay for it. Like don't, don't go unless you can secure funding because it's, ultimately a vanity degree and it's not gonna get you super far but if you love it if you really love writing and you want a chance to be an artist and like grow amongst a community of people who like really invest in your development as an artist like then go (laughs) it's my word of caution to people seeking graduate arts degrees
0: (laughs) so yeah well i mean you had a good time though right Oh
1: my God. I mean, yes, it's such an interesting mixed bag of like where I was in my personal life versus like what I was being given through the program um, where again, I was in this relationship and like, you know, fuck it, safe place to speak from the heart. So I got involved with a teacher in my high school and then had proceeded to have like a seven year relationship with that person. And so when I got to grad school was like the first moment that I was like, oh my God, like I I have worth outside of this relationship and this relationship is not invested in my well-being. It It is not interested in seeing me grow. Like the more I grew as a human, Mm. the more this person resented me because they needed me to stay small, Mm -hmm. you know, like um, the more I grew into my power, the more threatened they were. Um, And then getting to Madison and like with the encouragement of some people that I met there, they were just like, you need to let it go. And just like, you know, and it's it was a messy breakup. It took forever for me to convince this person that I was serious about not wanting to be in relationship with them. Um, so all of that was happening in my first semester. And at the same time, like going to class and like, you know, like you can walk into bookshelves and (laughs) see my classmates and professors books on the shelf, you know? Mm. And like, again, like being this like rural kid, you know, it was just like, frankly, it was a culture shock. Uh I was just like, oh my God, these people are so much more sophisticated than me. Like they just know things I don't know. Mm. Like they're, they're saying words I don't understand. (laughs) And like, I had a college degree, so Um, so yeah, it was like, it was like this spiritual awakening, but like a lot of spiritual awakenings it requires like this, like dissolution of self and like everything, you know, and like, I was just like being like shattered on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I was in this space that like, again, you know, because of the kinds of people that are attracted to poetry and like, you know, teaching, um, poetry and fiction, like through sort of artistic mentorship, they were also like giving me tools and kind of like helping me plant seedlings of just like growing into the person that I was trying to become. Mm. Um, And, you know, and also developing as a writer, you know, like the poems I started, the poems that I used to get into the program versus the poems I was writing at the end of the two years, wildly different. Mm. Like I started to just kind of, be willing, like at first I was writing poems to be taken seriously and please other people and like mimicking writers that I loved. And, you know, as a young writer, that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of how you begin is like, you know, you just, you kind of imitate. And then um, with some guidance and also just, again, being in that moment of transformation, um, I started being willing to be risky and weird and like, um you know, really playing with language. Like David would always say that poetry is the music of language. So I was really invested in like being musical in my work Mm -hmm. and like just kind of pushing the boundaries of what language can do. Um, And sometimes I took that too far and these poems were like utterly incomprehensible to anybody but me. (laughs) And that's something that I've spent the last god, I guess it's been seven years now since I finished. Um, That's something that I've been trying to like find the middle ground of like, being accessible, having inviting the reader into a piece versus like, basically kind of showing off and being like, look how smart I am with my (laughs) syntax. You know what I mean? (laughs) So yeah, I kind of had to grow out of, you know, that phase too, and then and start to merge these skills of like, you know, I want to write things that people connect with, because that was what that was what gave me so much life when I when I found poetry. And, you know, even before that, like, I'd always been a big reader. And it was like, you know, these worlds were um, more home to me than my home was, like, I kind of couldn't wait, I couldn't wait to get out of my parents house. And I couldn't wait to get out of my hometown. And it was just um, a pretty bleak place. And then when I you know, writing or reading rather was like my first respite where I would just like lock myself in my room and read or like literally spend hours a day in the woods outside my house <laughs> with my book. And like, um, and then discovering poetry was kind of the next layer of that feeling of belonging and connection and um, just being able to feel at home in this world because I found the little corner of it where... Um, you know, my ideas and my feelings were welcome. Mm. And so seeing, seeing myself as a writer start to develop into that person who's more invested in connecting with people and offering a sense of belonging to people who maybe don't feel like they belong versus just kind of patting myself on the back being like, <laughs> aren't I clever?
0: <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to poetry, though, what about it do you love?
1: Mm. I love how much you experience in a short amount of time. Mm. Like you can, there are some poems that I feel like have the emotional scope of a novel and they're doing it in, you know, 14 lines. And to me, that's like astonishing. And I think sometimes, and I don't want to, I don't want to like neg on this kind of poetry too hard because I love when people just like write little poems for fun Um, but there's like, there is a difference between a poem that somebody just sort of like writes down the first time and then never goes back to. And then there are these poems where like poets spend years on these things and like, you know, it takes up a page and yet there's just still like, there's still so much work to be done. There's this kind of refinement that happens, um, in poetry that like, uh, some, a kind of platitude that like gets tossed around in the writing world, um, by poets at least, (laughs) is that, um, fiction is the right words in the right order and poetry is the best words in the best order. (laughs) Ah. And so I think, I think there's something about like, I don't even want to call it the economy of poetry because I don't like I try to avoid like peppering in capitalist words into, <laughs> into things into moments like this. Um, but there is just something powerful about evoking a feeling and an experience without needing 300 pages.
0: Mm. So you, you mentioned that initially you thought that fiction was your thing and then you found poetry. Do you still do fiction as well?
1: I do, yeah. It's I've come back to it recently. Um, I started writing short stories again, um, probably like a year, a year and a half ago. I just kind of gotten to this point where, um, like, I have. I have such a huge body of work of poems that I don't want to say that I got bored. It's not, that's not quite the truth. It's more just like I felt kind of wrung out on that particular form and wanted to take a break from it. Mm. And yet I don't want to abandon my writing practice because just like any practice, like you do start to kind of lose things and get a little rusty. It's not that you can't gain those back. You absolutely can. Mm. Um, But I think that, like all of the writers that I admire talk about having a consistent practice, even if that changes shape, right? Like sometimes your practice can be writing like a hundred words a day or something, or maybe maybe it's allowing yourself to only write once a month, but you're still doing it mm. in some like consistent form. Um, so yeah, I went back to fiction um, I kind of had these little fragments that I'd collected over the years of prose that I just wasn't sure what to do with. And mm-hmm. I kind of think of them as like spare parts. I'm like, <laughs> they're around, you know, they might come in handy mm-hmm. someday, but I can't do anything with, with them right now. Cause I, frankly, I'm not sure what they are mm. and I'm not sure how they fit together. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, I just I found this like little fragment um, of kind of like a like a real life conversation that I had heard in my friend's house. Um, And they were just talking about really mundane things. Um, But there was something about it that just kind of like struck something in me and I just wrote it down almost verbatim. And then I filed that away and then I started writing this other story and then I thought of that like little piece of conversation and I was like, oh, that belongs in here. So then it just sort of started to grow from there where I just like between these spare parts and then the new stuff that I was writing, I was like, oh, and now I have a short story. How cool is that? (laughs) Um, And then I was lucky enough to, so I live in Boulder, Colorado, and um, there is a pretty local art scene here. It's close enough to Denver too that there's like a lot of cross-pollination. And through a friend of mine who also um, writes and does photography, I heard about a fellowship, not a fellowship, I'm sorry, a grant, a grant that um, a local nonprofit um, foundation that had largely, weirdly enough done a lot of like environmental work and environmental activism um, they had generated some funding and wanted to kind of transition into funding local artists. Mm. Um and so I submitted a proposal for a novel because nobody wants to buy poetry. <laughs> it's just a fact. Like if you write poetry like it's you're not in it for the money. Um and you know, fiction. I'm at, you know, I'm just at a point in my writing life where um yeah, I just I don't need my writing to support me financially in its entirety, but it is nice to be rewarded yep. for the things that you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, so I submitted my proposal for this novel and they liked it. They accepted the proposal and they gave me a grant. Um, so I was able to, for the most part, live and work as a writer again for about a year. And I wrote a first draft of a novel and it still needs a lot of work. There are definitely some flimsy parts because I just sort of had this, like, since it's just a grant, there's no like publication that's guaranteed or required on the end of it. It's just funding, Mm -hmm. um, for the project. Um, so, you know, technically I could have not finished the first draft and it would have been fine, you know, as long as I had a substantial body of work to like submit to the, to the foundation as like proof that like, Hey, you didn't waste your money. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, as far as like the parameters were pretty flexible, but for me, I really wanted to like have that deadline of a year of like, I want like a working first draft by this time. Mm. Um, So there was definitely a moment in time where I just was trying to meet that deadline and was just kind of like very much just getting things down. Mm. Whereas prior, like there had been moments where like things were just so meticulous and carefully crafted and I was like editing as I was going. Mm. And then there's just this back half of the book where I had just gotten to this point where I had like written myself to a certain point and I was like, okay, I know where I'm headed. And so I wrote that part. And then there's this middle part where I'm trying to get from that point to the other. And mm. I just had to, like, I just had to kind of stitch it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I need to go back and kind of, like, re- like instead, like, I need to take away the scaffolding and, like, you know, continue building the thing.
0: <laughs> mm, mm, um, mm.
1: So, yeah, it's been, yeah, the most, so, the last two years have been more pros.
0: Um, will it be, I mean, is it going to be something you will go back too soon or you're just taking time away from it?
1: Yeah. So I finished the first draft in, at the beginning of April. Um, So I've been taking a little break from it since then. Um, And my summer tends to be a time where I'm like just busier and more active in my life. Like, you know, you can be outside a lot and I really try to soak that up and I'm definitely more social in the summer. Um, And so, there's just like other things that I needed to worry about. And once the grant funding ended too, like I had the very real question of like, okay, so how do I make money again? Um, And that became more the primary focus of the last couple months. And then Mm. now I'm kind of like, I'm finding some stability on that front. And so I imagine, I imagine I'll go back to it very soon. I have a bunch of voice memos of like ideas of like those parts that I know really need work. So like, in a way it's like always with me and I'm always kind of thinking about it. Mm. Um, and I'm leaving myself this like trail of breadcrumbs so that when I go back to working on it intensely, like I have, I have some stuff to work with because I had just gotten to this point where I'm like, and I don't know what else to do <laughs> <laughs> and living, you know, and in, in kind of gesturing back towards something I said before, like living life does tend to be really good fuel for writing and like all art, right? Like it just, you know, i'm I'm meeting new people. I'm having different sorts of conversations and a lot of the themes of the book because it's stuff that I'm thinking about. It's like there's probably a name for this phenomenon. But like when you notice something for the first time and then you notice it everywhere, um, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about the book, where it's like I've just had these themes that I'm working on and these conversations mm. I've been wanting to have. And then I'm just like, hearing it everywhere, like hearing other people talk about these things and like seeing it play out in the world. And I'm just like, oh, like pull out my phone, voice memo time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So, you know, we talked about your writing, the other part, part I thought is about the king. How did that start for you?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've had a kinky side for as long as I can remember. Um, I think that first expressed itself as a kind of exhibitionism. Like I just really loved being looked at. Um, and really loved like exposing my body and um, having that be witnessed and that you know I would say like in my teenage years I was more in touch with that and then in that relationship I mentioned that was like not particularly good for me Um, one of the things that kind of demanded of me was that I like Like, weirdly enough, maybe not weirdly, some people just aren't kinky. Like, that side of me was, like, not okay in that relationship where, Mm. like, I don't know if it felt, again, like, I have a feeling that this person was, like, really intimidated by, like, feminine power and, like, felt, um, I don't know, just uneasy around those moments where I would express that part of myself or, Mm. like, you know, I really liked, like, dressing up in lingerie and, like, I would, like, literally do that and then you know, kind of planned this whole scene and then he would come home and maybe I should have talked to, to him about it in advance. Maybe things would have gone differently. But like, you know, I would invite him into these scenes that were like pretty tame, you know, like nothing, nothing super kinky yet. And he would always just kind of be like, I don't know what to do with this. And, like, I would always be kind of crushed because I'm just like, isn't this, like, every guy's fantasy? Like, you're coming home to your hot girlfriend in lingerie. What's your deal? (laughs) Um, But, like, you know, there's all kinds of things to unpack in what I just said. And, you know, again, like, you know, there definitely could have been more forthright conversations about that. But anyway, so during that period of my time, I would say, like, the kink got, like, kind of, like, condensed and contained. And I kind of had to put it away. And then during that time in grad school, um, through some connections that I made and a, a relationship that I had for like a little over a year, um, he's actually who turned me on to Fet life, um, And that would have been like 2013. And it was just wonderful to like suddenly be exposed to this community of people. And like, you know how sometimes you don't recognize things in yourself until you see it in other people. And so there was just, like, a lot of permission that I got from the space in FetLife. And I wasn't super active. I was definitely more of a voyeur. I was kind of too scared to, like, participate a lot. And um, then, again, like, you know, it was like the kink was showing up in my relationships, but it was very much contained to my, like, my dating life. Um, And I started more actively seeking out partners who were at least interested in kink. Um, and then, uh, I would say only in the last two or three years, like right before COVID is when I started really kind of like giving myself permission to be like, no, this is part of me. And I refuse to be ashamed, you know, Mm. like I've, I'm just, I'm so tired, of living in a shame-based culture. I'm so tired of hearing all those voices in my head that aren't mine telling me that I'm not supposed to be a certain way or that this is inappropriate mm-hmm. or like whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just decided that like I was old enough and knew myself enough that like I was coming from a thoughtful place and mm-hmm. wanting to post on Life and, you know, understanding the risks I was taking and, you know, like feeling like I was well-equipped for like navigating what may or may not come up as a result of me posting myself online, because, Mm. you know, like, I post my face, you know, I like, that's not something that's lost on me. Um, You know, my thinking around that is like, I have tattoos, like, I'm infinitely identifiable, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, especially my big back piece, you know, like, that gives me away instantly. Mm. Um, But yeah, I just, uh, I've only recently taken kink out of the bedroom and started to, like, you know, be more like, fully embodied as like this is who I am in the world too like you know I I don't advertise you know these things to like just everybody right like you know I understand that there's still um again like a risk to like oh I lost my light I'm turning that back on sorry (laughs) (laughs) um you know again I like I just I'm careful with who like who I share this part of myself with but I would Mm -hmm. say that even you know whereas before even in my intimate circles I was sort of like I don't want them to know I'm a kingster, you know, like, and I'm hanging out with a lot of queer people, people who are like really accepting and like totally would have been like, Hey, me too. Or like, Hey, cool. (laughs) Um, And I still just had all this internalized shame. And then, yeah, in the last three years I've just been like, you know what, like I'm going to face that shame. I'm going to reclaim part of myself and not let myself be limited by other people's judgments and criticisms, especially Mm. when what I'm doing is consensual and safe and you know and, and like I think really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um just like the intimacy and the like I've had some of the best conversations around sex and sexuality um that are so nuanced and lovely in the kink community. Whereas like, you know, hearing, you know, hearing like more normative conversations around sexuality, at least in the States, it's just very constricted and very, you know, again, like shame-based and, and, you know, I think really um, damaging to people who are, you know, who, who just don't fit inside those lines necessarily. Um, So yeah, like my kinky side has been, with me for as long as I can remember, but I'm only now willing to like really step into that. And what are like, some no. things
0: that led to that acceptance?
1: Um, I would say, um, going back to fat. Cause like I, you know, I was interested in it in like 2013 to like 2015. And then I, I had like, I think about it as like my vagabond wandery years. Like I was just really unrooted and just sort of like, you know exploratory and like moved around a lot and um didn't didn't really participate in the internet a lot i don't know how to say that like i just like i'm not on facebook i i only briefly had an instagram as a way of connecting with uh people in the boulder when i first moved here but i don't have that anymore i've never been on twitter um Uh, like I'm just not on them. Um, and so, you know, there was like, there was just a period of time where I was just kind of like cocooning. Um, and then, you know, as I've been like emerging as this like transformed person, Mm. I've just, it's, it's just like, I have found people who nurture that. Um, and I had a relationship, um, during the pandemic where he, um, he was like, he was connected to a kink community. Um, where, like, he had friends out in Washington State who, um, like, ran one of the BDSM camps in Burning Man, and he had gone to Burning Man a lot and had this, like, whole community of kingsters that he kept in touch with. Mm. And that started to give me permission of, like, oh, right, like, because I, I had gone to back to FET for this as well, where, it, like, it just... It was kind of one of those, like, hilariously simple moments of, like, oh, it's not just, like, online that I can find these people, right? Like, kingsters are everywhere, mm-hmm. and I can... I can, you know, and obviously like COVID made this like not possible in the, on the front end, but just having that seed planted of like, oh, there's a kink community in Denver. There's a kink community in Boulder. Like there Mm -hmm. are people in real life I can connect with. Um, And that's really important for me. Like I really need, I really need that like physical in-person connection and the energy exchange. Mm. Um, And so I started just uh, right before lockdown, I had gone to a couple like TNG Boulder events and like meetups and like, um, you know, was starting to kind of like make plans for like gangbangs and stuff like that, like stuff Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to do. And like, I was just like, so excited. (laughs) And then COVID hit, so obviously yeah. everything kind of got locked down, but I was still with my partner, um, my ex-partner at the time who you know we had a kink dynamic, and we would plan out scenes and um, it was really it was really fun to start to like, you know, he was really the first partner that I had that had like more experience in like mm. actually embodying kink. Um, and then you know he wasn't super open publicly like he kind of had his own stuff to work out on that front like he really only felt safe in like his like burning man community for example mm. um, and then when that relationship ended uh, part of part of the interesting things about that interesting thing about that relationship was that despite him being a kingster there was still something about my exhibitionism that was like a little threatening and like everybody's got their limits you know everybody's got their boundaries so you know uh, it was it was one of the ways that we weren't compatible, even if I could like empathize with where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that relationship ended, I just like dove hard into fat and was just like, I am like I am ready to own that I want strangers to see me naked, <laughs> and I'm ready to own that I love like embodying myself, and this is a way that I do that. That like I am a hypersexual person, like. I think we're kind of deluding ourselves about how much sex takes up our lives, you know, Um, and kind of governs things in this weird, like, sort of, like, unseen way. Um, And I think, you know, there's also something about, like, stepping into that space as a woman. And, like, you know, I think Mm -hmm. of the content that I create. Like I really want to be empowering to women, like even if it's not in this like explicit way, like I want to suggest through my own willingness to embody myself Mm. that like there is space for you in the world as a woman and you can be safe and you can, you know, have these like nuanced, complex, you know, relationships with power and submissiveness that don't make you a bad feminist. And like you can make porn and not be a bad feminist. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, that's, you know, I feel like I went off on a tangent No, 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 no,
0: no. You touched on something that, um, so COVID happened, shut everything down. You couldn't do some of the things you wanted to do. But talk about creating content. Something that really happened a lot was a lot of people were going online to uh, start sex walks, like creating content online. What, um, like, is that something you're considering? And what did you think of that?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I totally get it, and I, I lost, I got laid off immediately um, when lockdown happened. I was working in service industry, and the restaurant I was working for shut down indefinitely. Um, and um, I had begun posting on Fet, and I did this post kind of like um just like asking for support like if anybody like you know kind of calling for support of everybody who got laid off and kind of gesturing towards like those of you who are able to work remote and are like in these frankly like cushy tech jobs like you know maybe you can kind of step into this place of like for those of us that don't have that opportunity um you know offering some community support especially like mm-hmm. through the lens of fat right like we're all here it's a self selecting group mm-hmm. um and so like I sold a couple of nudes and like nothing, nothing big. Um, you know, I've always been sort of intimidated on using other platforms and like not really knowing where to start, you know, like I've mm. thought about, I end up talking myself out of it a lot where I'm just like, I should cam, I think I'd love it. And then I'm like, but I don't know where to get started and what site do I use? And like, how much do you actually get paid? And is it worth my time? And <laughs> um, yeah, like I totally get, why a lot of people went to content creating in that moment of like you're sort of being denied like your traditional ways of living and also like frankly like sick of being paid so little so like Mm. if you if you have an opportunity to maybe have more autonomy and sort of like the paradox of more dignity as a result of that autonomy um, through camming or through, you know, sex work or whatever it might be. Like I have so much empathy and understanding for that, you know, and I definitely think about it, like, especially, um, you know, seeing my numbers grow on FET, like it's been astonishing to me where I'm like, Oh my God, like I never (laughs) thought in a million years, I would have a thousand followers on any social media. And now like I just broke 6,000 yesterday and I'm just like, this is bananas (laughs) (laughs) sentences I never thought I'd say. Um, And so, you know, seeing the way that people are responding to me is giving me a lot more courage. Um, Like I'm actually chatting with somebody who does cam work in Denver, um, who's graciously kind of um, offering a little bit of guidance and mentorship, just like things they wish they'd known when they started Mm. and like, how to use some of these platforms and like really make the lifestyle work for you. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm increasingly interested in, in being more on paid platforms. And like, I have some hesitance about that for like, you know, it started like all of this started as something I was largely doing for fun and as a way of like owning myself. Um, and you know, I, I, I worry about like the transition from like free content to then Mm. asking people to pay, you know, like. There is a phenomenon. Because then,
0: the, like, there's this um, expectation.
1: Yeah, and like, I feel like there's like the expectation of like, well, you were giving it away free for, you know, before. Like, you know, how dare you charge me now?
0: Mm. Um,
1: and you know, I think there is sometimes like a sense of entitlement once you've been given something, and then suddenly you're being asked to like, you know, and, and you know, I I think about like OnlyFans. I think about like ChatterBait, and like, you know, just kind of thinking about like what platform would I use if I wanted to do this and what would be fair to people who want to see me and yet also fair to me because like I'm investing increasingly a lot of time and energy into this. Um, And I, I do think of it as like one of my artistic endeavors and you know, I, I would love to, again, like I don't need to live on it exclusively, but if it, if it allows me um some stability and space to then keep creating content like I feel like it's a win-win for everybody who's like mm. interested in seeing my stuff you know um but it's you know it's just it's been hard for me to like want to I just don't even know where to start which is why I'm like this person in Denver who's like mentoring <laughs> me I'm, well, like, well
0: yeah you have the mentor right
1: yeah yeah And we just started chatting. They actually reached out to me. They've been doing cam work for years and um, just like they were just really uh, affirming of the content that I was making and like, you should think about camming. I think you'd really like it. Like we can even do scenes together because they're, you know, they're fairly successful. They're doing great. So um, they're able to live off what they're making comfortably. Mm. Um, And again, like I don't have that expectation. I think there's something about being a writer and being used to a lot of rejection and like not making any money off poetry, where I'm just like, I don't want to. I don't want to feel like the world owes me um, mm. this money for this content that I'm making. But if the universe wants to give me the gift of of like sustaining me energetically from this thing that I'm already putting out there, mm. that would be cool, you know, like that, like. I think that there's like some, again, like, like I'm looking to reclaim some dignity through all of this. And it's like, I think it's really funny that how I'm doing that is through porn and like willfully objectifying myself.
0: Mm. But I do
1: think that there's like, really a lot of power in that. Um, And I, you know, I've been thinking, like, I want to do a lot of research into the history of porn, because I'm starting to get really interested in this designation of like, you know like why why is it porn and not art you know like this is this is one of those questions that i feel like you know like a lot of people have asked and i bet you there's like great literature and research and conversations out there mm. and i'm just starting to ask that question for myself of like yeah why isn't pornography art you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's that i remember uh there's actually this lady that made a film it isn't is it's not a documentary it's fiction but it's kind of based on a real story i can't remember what the thing is what it's about uh i can't remember the title of the film but it's about porn in like in the valley in california or something and um it played at some pretty neat festivals i can't i'll try and find the name and send it to you
1: yeah i would love that yeah because like i you know i did some like like when I was starting to dabble in all of this, like, you know, I was curious about, like, my safety in a legal sense. So I did, like, the legal research of, like, what is as far as I can go with sex work while still being legal? And technically, under the law, pornography is art, and that's why we can distribute it. That's why it's not illegal, like, to do cam work and things like that. Like, visual media and things like that is all protected because it is art in that sense. But I'm interested in, like, this conversation in the public sense where, like, you know, if you were to ask. I feel like if we were to take a poll of random people on the street, you know, I feel like most people would be like, no, porn is porn, not art. Porn is porn. (laughs) And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. But (laughs) can we like maybe broaden the conversation a little bit as to like, why do we, why do we make that designation? You know, Mm -hmm. like why, why is, why is, you know, and I, you know, I, I feel like a lot of this is, you know, definitely changing, but like, I can think of a couple people in my life who you know, when these conversations comes up, like, women, you know, and these, the two people I'm thinking of are women. And I, you know, I get their fear around pornography, because it has been exploitative, and it has been dangerous to women. And like, you know, there's not always a lot of like, protection or uh, like recourse, if you feel like violated doing a scene, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because of its fringiness. Um, But I feel like, that will like that kind of stuff perpetuates through a culture of silence and shame. So if we can, if we can normalize some of these things and be like, no, like this is a, this is real work. This is a profession. This is creativity. Um, and it can be safe and empowering for women. Um, you know, I just think that like maybe then we would think of it more as like an artistic endeavor. And like, you know, these, these people who are so, afraid of it I don't know I I wonder about the fear around these things like what are is it like I don't know (laughs) are we like corrupting people it's like no like you're all here because someone had sex you know (laughs) I don't know. Like, all of these conversations are so interesting <gasps> oh, to me. Oh, man.
0: It's, it's always interesting, Chance, with you. And I'm like, uh, I w- just want to keep it going. But I'm going to let you go. However, yeah, before sure. I do that, <laughs> I, I'm going to ask this last question. Totally. Um, To you, what is something you think people misunderstand when he, where kink is involved?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about that. Um, and I, you know, I think... I think there's a, there's a sense that like you get involved with kink because you're somehow damaged or you've got trauma you're trying to work out or, um, kink is just a sneaky way that people like, um, work out their shit in a, in these unconscious ways. And, um, and that like you know, somehow it's not consensual. But I think the kink community is like the best example of where nuanced and beautiful conversations around consent happen. Um, And I think, you know, the way, like everybody's got trauma. So I feel like, you know, you can throw that argument out the window. Like plenty of people have trauma and it's not unique to kink. It's not unique to vanilla life. Like everybody experiences stuff. Um, Mm. But I think what makes kink different in that regard is that, through these wonderful conversations around consent and how negotiations and contracts are such a part of this, um, like boundaries get drawn that are really healthy and people can play with those boundaries in a way that yeah. can be really healing. Um, and it can be this reclamation. Like, you know, I definitely am coming at it from that place. Um, mm. And I think that that's something a lot of Kingsters share is that there's like some shadow side that we don't want to be afraid of. We want to be Mm. able to engage with it in a way that that shadow doesn't then control us because we're in conversation with it. Mm. Um, And to do that through connecting with other people is also like this beautiful transformative process of like you're being witnessed, you're being seen um, and you're also witnessing and seeing other people and, and you're really nurturing vulnerability. And like, I feel like it does a really good job of like, you know kink is not just about power it is also about vulnerability and the relationship between these things and they're like mm. you know it does a good job of like exploring the ways that it's two sides of the same coin
0: Mm. mm. Wow, Lila, this has been super enlightening and I I can't wait to read your book when it's finally done. Thank you. I appreciate Um, that. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing, being super open and vulnerable. And also thanks for coming to the sanctuary today.
1: Of course. It's been this has been really fun. Thank you so much.